Welcome to the latest episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. If you are a leader who is serious about building your leadership skills and transforming your organizational culture, you are in the right place. I'm Russell Stratton. And I'm Ken Cameron. And in this episode, we need to effing talk to Byron Brooks, the owner of Brookwright Developments in Calgary. So some of our listeners will have tired of hearing me talk about my new house by this point, because I have been building this house for like two years, and I moved into this house about halfway through the launch of our podcast, I think about four months into our podcast, so I'm sure I've been talking about it endlessly, and I've been talking about how excited I am about the house, about my new studio, the reason this is relevant today is because we're going to keep talking about my new house because Brookwright Developments and Byron Brooks are the people who built that house. And I'm really pleased with Brookwright and I'm really pleased to have Byron on our show because Brookwright is like much more than just a home builder. They're kind of like a boutique home builder. The small scale team that they have ensures that their clients receive like much more individualized services. And they really kind of represent the craft side of the house building industry rather than say the commodity side of the of the business so this means like they're not competing on building like whole suburbs and the lowest price possible instead they're really competing on quality so in kind of a way you can kind of think of brookwright as being the equivalent of a local craft brewery kind of lean smart team that ensures that your that your house like your beer isn't mass-produced And kind of in keeping with that theme, Byron is also the founder of Builders and Brews, which partners with local craft breweries to to produce events that have kind of a social side and an educational purpose for the trade associations to kind of make the home building industry better through education, collaboration, giving back to the communities and that sort of thing. So we're going to talk today about these two different kinds of things, about running a small business, about being in in this industry, but also about community building in the work that Byron does through Builders and Brews. So with that long-winded introduction, welcome, Byron. Welcome to the show. Thanks, guys, for having me. And I think I think we're done. I think you I think you summed it all up, Ken. We I think we're good. Yeah, well, okay. Way to try to get off the hook there. Way to squirm <laughs> out uh, off of the hook. No, you're not getting off that easy. Because, you know, I mean, we, we got to talk about a whole bunch more things. Like specifically, let's jump in the Wayback Machine. Let's go all the way back in time. And how did Brooke Wright get its start? And when? Like, how far back are we going when we jump into our, our Wayback Machine? Yeah, absolutely. I think we, we can go, we can go, uh, we can go pretty deep, I think, um, back to... Uh, when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I was not uh, an optimal student. I'm like many teenage boys, uh, didn't flourish in that environment and was invited by my high school principal to leave a few months early. Uh, I took him up on that and went to pursue my carpentry career. Um, and from there, I went through a whole variety of building uh, building disciplines. So I worked in commercial construction for quite a while, uh, for most of my career, actually, but I ended up leaving that environment because I found it uh, to lack a connection to the end user of the the buildings I was building. Um, so as I moved ahead in my career, focused more on finishing carpentry, uh, I ended up connecting with my business partner, Brian, um, almost 10 years ago now. And from there, we went on to build uh, Brookwright, uh, Brookwright Homes, focusing on um, serving architects and designers through the work that we do, recognizing that a lot of our industry views architects as an impediment to progress, and we chose to embrace them as part of the team it takes to build 
interesting homes. Uh, and that kind of ethos and the work we've done has resonated with people over the last uh, eight years. And it's come to uh, be the company that we have today, where we're a small, like you said, boutique uh, custom home builder. We do uh, two to five projects a year here in Calgary uh, with our team of eight people, nine people right now. Um, and it, it's fun. It's the right size where we can maintain a connection with the people we're building for, with the designers we work with, and with our trade partners uh, that that contribute to our projects. That's great. That's very interesting. You made that point. You were invited to leave a few months early by your principal, and I. Uh, it made me smile when you said that, but it also reminded me that um, that traditional education isn't necessarily the be all and end all for everybody in terms of being success. Just because perhaps the uh, more of the academic style wasn't um, for you, but the um, more vocational and hands-on trade side was, and, and you've been able to turn that into a successful business. But I'd like to come back to, because in your in the intro, Ken was talking about this difference between a craft builder and a builder builder, um, and that all sounded wonderfully fascinating. But I thought our listeners would be interested to know, what do you see the difference between a craft builder and a builder builder? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think I think builder builders. So builder, like what we're calling builder builders, are what most people would perceive as our industry. And I think I think the typical view there is that it's a commodity-driven industry where you build a square foot for as low as you can, you try and sell it for as much as you can. It's the way developers perceive it. It's the way um, real estate agents think about the value, the the value per square foot of a home. But people like me who got into this business from the craft side, because I like pursuing carpentry, I like working with my hands, I like connecting with people to build things, um, we're we're better served thinking of as a as a craft. So for a brief portion of my career, I, I checked out of commercial construction and I took a year off and I went to furniture making school in the Sunshine Coast of BC, um, probably because I had to step away from the the grind, so to speak, and reconnect with why I started, why I became a carpenter and a builder in the first place. So that was wonderful. I went to, I went there and built things like, uh, it's not going to come through an audio, but like a handmade plane. Like I made this and I made handmade furniture, the absolute opposite of the production mindset. But that really connected me back with the craft of carpentry and how we carry that forward into our work now is thinking about projects uh, from that end and the and the parallel or the analogy that works really well when we're talking about this uh, is to craft beer. So it's it's fun that you guys brought that up. Where you can go to Costco and you could buy a fifty pack of Bud Light or forty eight pack of Bud Light or whatever Bud Light comes in, and you'll pay a dollar five a can or something per unit. But you won't hesitate to go to a local craft brewery, pay almost a four or five hundred percent markup for the same volume of beer because you're getting a better experience. You're getting a better end product. And I think most importantly, you have a connection to the people that produce that beer, whether that's because they're right there. And you can often go to the back and say, hey, I want to talk to the brewer and find out why he chose to put this concoction together. And I think that's really cool. I think that's something we try and, and emulate uh, in our work. And there's some easy parallels, too, because we tend to wear the same things as craft brewers. We have beards. We have blundstone boots. So we're already halfway there. We just had to get some more language around it. 
okay. But it does make it seem interesting when you're saying that, that that similarity is like a a personal touch to it. When you were describing, you know, building furniture um, and then talking about the brewing process, there was like it, there was some, a personal attention to the detail of doing it rather than simply on that production line. Okay. We can churn out X number of, of units over this particular time span. And, you know, it's good, bad or indifferent. We're still going to get paid the same. That that's what I sort of noticed from my I observed being the, the difference that you were you were alluding to. Hmm. It's just more, yeah, it's more care and attention to the details that go into producing something, whether that's a an IPA or a or a beautiful living room. It's the same kind of ethos around the the craft of your of your work pursuit. There's also an interesting connection in your your personal journey from uh, working in the builder-builder environment and then taking your year off to uh, work in carpentry. Because there's a very similar journey that happens to one of the characters in our book, I Need to Effing Talk to You, The Art of Navigating Difficult Workplace Conversations, right? So in, um, spoiler alert to our listeners, but in chapter three of that book, it's set in a construction company. And in the latter half of that company, they have a big discussion about, is this industry the right fit for you between the two characters? And um, one of the characters slowly comes to accept that in fact they actually their skills are better suited to a smaller carpentry craft environment than it is to kind of the the environment in which he a construction environment in which he is currently working so again spoiler alert on chapter three there for our viewers we haven't given away the other chapters you can still read the book um but so i find it interesting that you should have gone through such a similar journey and yet we've been drawn to each other and i didn't know this before we started the podcast so i find that's really really interesting thanks for sharing that byron yeah, no problem. I think people aren't often given enough time to be introspective about their work and people don't pause to say, wait, am I doing what I wanted to do? So it was nice that I had that opportunity to have that realization and had the people around me that allowed me to pursue um, pursue that outlet and continue to grow that craft side. So I just wanted to look in when you said about the introspection, Byron, is that something that you encourage in your business as a matter of course for the people that work for you to take some sort of time out to reflect on what they're doing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's closely related to one of our uh, one of our kind of guiding principles of uh, if you're not having fun, this is just a shitty hobby. Um, so it, it's, it's right in line with that. And it's having fun sometimes means having a closer look at why you're here? Why are you why are you getting in your truck at five thirty in the morning to drive out to Canmore? Like, is it because you're being put in the best best position to pursue your craft and improve your skills and yourself by association, or is it because you just want a paycheck? Because if you just want a paycheck, this probably isn't the right. It's probably not the right path for you. There are easier ways to make money. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And I want to Ken and I have come up with that with with other companies that we, we've worked for and um, worked with 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 people. Sort of, you know, is this really what you want to be doing? Are you doing it because it's a passion of yours, or are you doing it because it's paying you money? And if it's just because it pays you money, and that's fine. Um, is it really what you want to be doing? Um, is there something else that would be better suited for you? Because it certainly sees that your sort of values that you're talking about would fit for a lot of people, but maybe not fit fit for some. Yeah, I, I would agree. I wonder if we could contextualize some of this for our listeners. Of course, they can go to your website and look at some of the houses you've built that are beautifully depicted on your website. But for those that are listening, driving around Calgary, half of our listeners are in Calgary, um, what are some of the homes they might have seen that, that 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 they might very well be seeing as they're driving around listening to the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
So Calgary listeners would be familiar with that thing that happened here in 2013, which is always astounds me that that's almost 10 years ago. But uh, in 2013, we had a large flood here, which affected a lot of, uh, of the inner city of Calgary. Uh, and one neighborhood that we were building in is Roxborough. Uh, and so there's one uh, quite a beautiful modern home that we built on Roxborough Road. And then we also went on to build one just down the road in Earlton, which backs onto the Elbow River, uh, called the Butterfly House and has a very distinctive uh, butterfly shape to the house and a, a full metal exterior. Um, it's it's a house that a lot of people have come and said, you built that house? Because people kind of, it's not to say it's iconic, but it's easily recognizable. And uh, and the design resonates with people that, that drive by it. That's, that, that's good. And it'd be interesting for our, uh, our listeners then, if they haven't seen that house, to go and take a little trip when they're driving around in Calgary yeah. and see if they can they can see it and yeah. um, they'll get an idea of what, what your company's all about. So what I'd like us to think about in here is, uh, obviously you talked a bit about that sort of craftsmanship. We've seen that's something you were interested in getting into carpentry from um, high school, um, you know, taking time out of construction to go and further your trade in sort of furniture making. Uh, so the question is, what made you start your own business? Uh, besides the besides the usual uh, entrepreneurial answer, of I couldn't help myself, and or it happened by accident. Um, I, I always knew that um, I knew that that was the progression that I wanted my career to to take, and I knew I realized that at some point in my career as a carpenter that my my impact both to improve my own livelihood through making more money, but also my ability to impact change in the lives of others was amplified through building a team around me as opposed to just continuing to, to sort of cash a paycheck or do work on my own. And that's been pretty gratifying over the last, over the last number of years to see some of that success through my team or some of the proudest moments become uh, having one of my guys buy his first, buy his first house or, um, or things like that. That's, that's what's exciting for me uh, and is why I chose to build a company. Okay, again, that, that's that's a, a thought we resonates with with I know that many of our listeners. It certainly resonates with me in terms of you know being able to do something that you have a passion for, but also being able to see some growth through other people. It's not just all about you and what you can do, but also you're bringing on other people through sort of coaching and developing them in the business that they're getting success. You're seeing them sort of flourish, and uh, uh, that must be very gratifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. It's uh, it, it's neat. <laughs> it's uh, I always feel blessed that it, like that it worked out that way, and that and that I that I do have that ability is fun. A couple of quick fire questions about um, maybe a favorite movie that you have or a favorite TV show that teaches a life lesson. So something you think that you've you've watched? Is it something that you've read um, that? teaches a life lesson and we've also offered you an extra bonus point byron if it's a movie a tv show or book that involves a construction worker in it somehow so you get extra points if you can think of anything there but otherwise um what, what's a what's a movie or a book that's that's inspired you with a, a significant life lesson oh perfect yeah no uh sometimes it's not i guess it's a life lesson that applies to my work so one of the one of the few shows that my wife and I watch together is Grand Designs. I don't know if you've ever, either of you guys have ever seen it. Grand Designs UK specifically. Yeah. Um, and there was one interesting episode in there where the host was talking about um, he was he was responding to criticism they receive sometimes about these super fancy, really expensive homes that they build. Uh, and, and part of his response was just saying that um, 
if people never, if, if people didn't build homes like these that push the envelope for what's possible in residential construction, we would never be able to translate some of those ideas uh, throughout the rest of the industry. And I thought that was an interesting perspective. And it was, it was an idea that I've been able to use on, on our projects um, as we move forward when, when clients are either hesitant or apprehensive or, or we haven't fully established that trust with the team, which usually starts with the design team. Um, that that's language I've used that's been helpful. So that's the show Grand Designs. Plus, it's just sweet. There's some amazing houses in there. It does a good, balanced job of of demonstrating the difficulty that 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 homeowner journey can be sometimes. And something that Ken would no doubt recognize if we go back on there with your homeowner uh, journey on yeah. that as well, Ken. <laughs> I gotta, yes, I gotta go back and listen to some of these podcasts. I think I, gonna, I should have been. I should have been doing that while the build was going on. That would have been a would have been a good exercise. Oh, geez, we got to uh, we got to talk to Ken about this on Monday. Yeah, <laughs> but sorry, go ahead, Ken. Well, I wanted to I wanted to shift the discussion towards your other venture, Builders and Brews, which is well, I, I called it a venture, although I think it's more like a, a project hobby because it's it's, uh, it's it's certainly not an industry, it's not a business, it's just more of a community building exercise, I gather. But um, I'll, I'll let you describe it to our listeners. Sure, sure. Uh, and I, ironically, while we're recording this podcast, the brewer. So we have our office in a brewery, which is amazing. Um, but the reason we have our office in this brewery is because. Uh, four or five years ago, we helped build out the tap room here. Um, and while I was there with with my team building the building the tap room, building the cabinetry and the tables, uh, we got to see firsthand how the craft beer industry works to support each other. Uh, guys would come in and um, drop off kegs of beer. I'm like, why are you guys dropping beer off at your competitor's office? Essentially, oh well, they're going to sell it when they when they open these taps up, or they'd have. We'd have other teams come to drop off hops. Why are you dropping off essentially materials to produce your product to your competitors? Like, oh, because we had extra of this particular variety. We know they wanted it. Uh, and then we had one more where other com- guys from just down the street at Banded Peak Brewing would come over here to Annex Ales. And what are you guys doing here? And they were there to help set up equipment because they had messed it up when they set up their brewing. It cost them a lot of money. So it was neat to see that. And then to talk to the brewers here um, and understand, oh, like, why? Why are you doing that? What does that look like? And do you have, like, is it, are you, are you communists or what's the, what's the story? But it just came to light <laughs> that they, they recognize that as small independent players, their ability to educate consumers locally and build each other up through sharing resources, sharing people, sharing marketing ideas, and often even actually investing in each other's breweries. Like, they'll, it, it's hilarious where, uh, Brewers will put in five thousand dollars and buy a lifetime beer subscription to a new brewery that's starting to start that's trying to start up. So you get a few of those lifetime memberships. Um, it really helps somebody get off the ground. So we looked at that, saw that firsthand, and then I started reaching. Hey, why don't we? Why don't we do this? This is we're we're along a similar path, um, and then that has turned into. Uh, sort of a, um, a a group that we have set up as a nonprofit. It's an independent company, but it hosts uh, events uh, quarterly here in Calgary, um, focused on education, collaboration, and giving back. Uh, it's just been a neat forum for the different segments of our industry to connect and network uh, in a meaningful way. 
Oh, that sounds really, really neat because it's uh, it's right, as you say, sometimes as we sit there as individual businesses, we all believe that we're in competition with, with others when in some cases we're um, more in an adjacent space. We're not maybe directly competing with them. We may not, but the collaboration approach, which really sort of seems a sort of collegiate approach you've taken, that mm-hmm. together we become stronger. If we can all help each other be slightly better, then that's going to be better for the industry as a whole and better for the, the customer than if we're all just sort of infighting and you know making the same mistakes and not sharing any information. So I'm, I'll take my hat off to your to your approach there. I wonder then, Byron, can you describe for us a typical evening at a Builders and Brews event? Is it all building? Is it all brews? Is it somewhere in between? <laughs> it's, it's somewhere in between. So we've tried to keep that, that same guy that uh, got invited to leave high school. We're aware that there's a few of those in the room. So we try and keep the education component light. Um, and then we allow, a lot, we allow space for networking. So, for example, we recently did an event, uh, which we had... Uh, almost 80 people at. We had 70-something people attend that event at a, a location called the Venue 308 here in Calgary. And we had uh, a woman named Penny uh, give a presentation on communication and construction, a client perspective, which was really, really interesting. And so she did a brief 25-minute uh, talk on how she, as a client who has been through a number of renovations and builds, um, how she thinks about how we can improve as an industry. Uh, and we'll be hosting a workshop on that later. But that was about 20 minutes, and then it's just an hour and a half of uh, of sort of open networking in an industry that's that seems to get easily siloed. I'm, I'm sure this happens in other industries, but you'll have like a plumbers association. So the plumbers go there for a breakfast, do a have a talk, but then they talk to other plumbers, which is great. You can, I, I think, a lot about that. Nothing unifies like a shared struggle. So I'm sure plumbers all share similar struggles. So it's nice for them to network, but it doesn't contribute to building meaningful working relationships necessarily um, in the same way it does when you have a room with architects and designers and vendors and trades and builders uh, all intermingling together, especially in light uh, of social media. We all use social media and I'll, we'll all know people through social media, but being offered a chance to connect in person uh, in a in a casual way uh, has really been nice to see um, come to fruition through these events. And, you know, it also was interesting for me, I was at that event um, that you were just describing at Venue 308. And while I was there, I was ch- chatting with some of the tradespeople who had actually worked in my house. So that was a really interesting perspective for me to be able to chat with them. But what was also really interesting was that the, the first thing they wanted to talk to me about, I mean, once they got through with, oh, I like that house, I, you're that house, I, I really enjoyed that house, beautiful house, etc. But the, the next thing out of every single person's mouth was, and I love working with Brookwright. And part of, and each of them had a different kind of reason why, but they could almost all be kind of grouped together under, I like working with Brookwright because they treat their trades well. They treat me well. They give me space to do my job to the best of my ability rather than putting obstacles in my way or they remove obstacles from my way or they create a great environment or they um, deal with the client so that when it comes to me, there's only like three bullet points I have to remember instead of having to have these three-hour conversations with the client. Whatever their reason was, I think those were like summaries of all five conversations I had, but it can all be grouped together into Brookwright takes care of me, the, the subcontractor. 
And I know from our, our separate discussions, Byron, that this is this is important to you. So I wonder if you can share with our readers why that's an important value for you. Uh, yes, because because I think our industry gets short shrift a lot of the time in terms of, and it's driven by that commodity mindset, right? Where you're trying to grind trades and like, I there's a few phrases that that trigger me, like I need to send you back to sharpen your pencil, or you got to do a little better here, or you got to. And most of the time, as it pertains to competitive bidding, so we do do that because we need to price check because we owe our our clients that service. But once we've passed that initial kind of vetting phase, then we try and do everything we can to set our trades up for success. Um, a win for us being when a client is set up to do the, or a trade rather, a trade partner is set up to do the absolute best work they can, and they feel like they've been paid fairly for it, which sounds dead simple, but but that feels like a win to us. So we try and really engage our team and our trade partners in, in finding those solutions. Uh, and that's been really helpful. And it obviously sounds to be successful as well because uh, uh, the feedback certainly you're getting via, via Ken there is that people were uh, pleased in working that environment. And I think that's one of the things, again, we you know Ken and I have talked about on other other podcasts is about giving people that space to be able to do their job. If you employ good people, then why are you then micromanaging what they do and telling them how to do their job? Surely that's why you employed them in the first place because now they're good at, good at what they do. So it's good. It's good to see that happening. Often that we talk about in a you know a theory view point of view with our teams that we work with, and then seeing it actually being put in practice by by companies such as yours. So um, moving that along a little bit in terms of. Um, what it's like to lead a company like that. You talked a little bit about some of the values. What, in your opinion, is perhaps the most important personality trait or strength that someone would need to lead a company that's like yours? <laughs> Patience and uh, and a lot of uh, <laughs> willingness to ride a, ride a roller coaster. But I think I think that um, I think empathy becomes one of those most important traits. Uh, just that, that ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and try and understand their perspective. And maybe, maybe they just had a shit morning and their, their, their dog is sick or their kid is, doesn't want to go to school. And they had to like leave their kid crying at home to head off to work it, trying to understand some of those things and getting to know people uh, on a little bit of more deeper and personal level isn't real hard to do, but it's something that's not, um, doesn't, not a lot of space is created for that in our industry. So we try and create that space where we can yeah that, that that's that's a, that's a good point and um again one that we've echoed in the book um one that we echo on our workshops is trying to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes as much as we can but to have an idea of where where they're coming from and the fact that something may be a difficult difficult conversation taking part between the two of you um is not necessarily because they're deliberately trying to piss you off there can be other things that are going on for them and sort of getting an understanding of that can often help us um unlock what the problem is and, and be able to move forward forward positively yeah it's cool speaking of problems um byron what's the uh what's the biggest career failure that you've had and what did you learn from that experience oh a career failure um let's see i think I think a career failure uh, that I have had is is trying to trying to do too many things. It does relate back to to trust. Basically, was uh, in the earlier years of Brookwright, not trusting my team um, to do the job 
do the job they've been they've been tasked with. Um, and so I've learned to let go of some of that over the last few years. Uh, and that's been really helpful. And it's been gratifying to see like, hey, Byron, we're doing this over here. Oh, that's amazing. Like something like um, this, uh, this thing on my wall over here, we we got exposed to something called the swim lane flow chart, which I'm sure people from other industries understand where when you look at every, every business has a has sales and marketing operations and a finance wing, right? And recognizing that when things go wrong in a company is when you pass information across lanes with, or you pass tasks across lanes without all the appropriate information. So we were able to map out a whole project from meeting the clients all the way through to the handover package on that swim lane flowchart. And that was something that that my team did uh, almost entirely without my involvement. Um, so that was neat to see, recognizing that I drifted off the, the failure question to talk about something we did well so maybe that's a maybe that maybe that's a mistake but but early earlier I wouldn't have done that I would have gotten deeply involved and probably messed it all up so giving my team the space to pursue those kind of projects and ideas and giving them uh, the trust to do so uh, has been a failure in my past but something I'm trying to improve uh, in my present so could, and in fact, you mentioned that swim lane flowchart. Could you just explain to our listeners a little bit more about how that how that works? Because one of the things they often benefit from is hearing some tips and um, tools that uh, our uh, guests have used that work for them that may also work in their businesses as well. So if you could give us just a couple of minutes just to, of how that works, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely, Russell. The So the swim lane flowchart, like I said, you have your three lanes of your business. You have your sales and marketing um, and typically, you'll have somebody in your organization, or you should have an accountability chart. So you have somebody who's assigned to the sales and marketing role. Uh, and then you also have operations. In our case, this is where the house gets built. This is where all the work happens. Uh, so in our company, that's a, that's a fellow named John, uh, who is our general manager. He manages the operations. And then on the other side of that, you have a finance wing, because you have to pay for everything, and you have to bill for everything, and you have to run a company that makes money. So uh, for us, that's Kirsten. She's our office manager. Um, so uh, a good example is uh, I meet a client, they've come through a referral from an architect. Um, so I have a little checkbox in my Swimlane flowchart that says needs analysis. And then I have a list of documents that I know to look out for. And then when I pass the project off to John in operations to do the estimating, now he has all that information captured. And then when he puts his estimate together, he knows to pass it back to me in sales and marketing with all the boxes checked. And then I can present that to the clients and you can start to track these tasks as they move through the different wings of your company. And then at some point it goes over to, to the finance side to say, okay, have we set our fees appropriately? Have we allowed enough time? Who, Where are the invoices going to go? It really is a helpful visual way to start to understand um, how you can structure that. And and uh, yeah, I welcome people to, to just Google that or connect with me. I'm happy to I'm happy to talk about it more in depth as required. Byron, you and your team put out a video earlier this month um, that, that I reposted um, describing your morning scrum activities, which is another great tool or mental model that you've been using. I wonder if you can uh, describe that morning scrum for us. And then maybe is there any way to tie these two, the swim lane and the scrum together? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we, and we've done that as well. And that's a great example uh, of something that John put in place. So Scrum is a Scrum is actually a component of agile project management. So Scrum from rugby, where you're all trying to put your put your shoulders together and push the ball down the field. Uh, and the way that manifests itself in our day to day 
is it's essentially a giant Kanban board with a to-do, doing, and done category. And then every morning we meet as a team to answer the three questions. What did I do yesterday to help the team finish the, the sprint or the scrum? What am I doing today? And then my question as a manager, or the question that I field is, um, what obstacles are getting in your way? Because uh, this is often where the where the blockages are and where the problems are. And maybe it's like, well, Ken hasn't picked the friggin' tile for his master ensuite yet. So that so then I know, okay, I better reach out to to Ken and Mark and Tony and find out why we haven't picked this tile yet, so that John can have the tile guy continue that along. It's a great system for getting all the problems out into the light. Where in the past you might hide those obstacles and kind of, oh, I'm sure that'll sort itself out next week. Now they're all put in the light every single day and we can deal with them as a team. Yeah, that sounds a great idea. And I've, I've had some involvement with that, with that style of um, you know, agile working in the past. And one of the things I liked about it was that, that last point you made, it had a chance to get problems out into the open because I know you've probably had this worked with people like this in the past to where if something goes wrong, they'd rather not tell you about it in the hope that either they can fix it or it sort of goes away on its own. And we sort of know that that tends not to happen. It just gets uh, starts as a small problem, I always say, and it ends up as a massive problem. So yeah. I always, when I was managing, I'd always rather say to my team, like, if there's a problem come up, let's find out what the problem is now so collectively we can find a way to solve it and move it forward. We don't want it to come and bite us on the arse like six months later because, uh, well, I knew that had gone wrong, but I sort of put it in the back uh, in the in the back bottom drawer. But I do want to clarify for our listeners that it was never a problem picking the tile because it was never my responsibility. My wife picked all of those colors and all of those materials, and she makes a decision like that. She never argue, uh, argues, waits, delays, or procrastinates over design decisions. She was on all of those things so so speedily. And if it had been left up to me, then that's when it would have been the, the I would have been the bottleneck for sure. So um, kudos to my wife. Shout out to her on the podcast. Um, but um, I, back to you, Byron. If, if you could be remembered for one thing at the end of your career when you uh, wrap up Brookwright, sell it off, for a fortune to uh, another to, to another another builder, another young up and comer, and you ride off into the retirement sunset. What would you like to be remembered for? Oh, there's there's a there's a there's a few things here, but I think I would I would like to be remembered as somebody who was somebody who was fair and who was a pleasure to deal with, uh, and somebody who was truly committed to seeing success for all the people that touched our our network whether that was trades, if I can find a way to help improve their business or make a connection even to another builder that they, and we've done that in the past uh, to, to connect our trades with other people we know they would enjoy working with. So that's what I would want to be remembered for as somebody who is fair and who is always willing to help others see success through their ventures. Okay, well, that, sound, that sounds wonderful, Byron. And uh, before we sort of head into the sort of final part of our um, our interview and conversation today, um, I have to, ha- to just sort of highlight something. When you were saying, obviously, you had worked on, on Ken's house and he had talked about his house being built throughout earlier podcasts. Um, and it was it was on the, the positive side. It, it, I have to straight, it did not get to a point when I was like, but say, you know, I'm going to need to get this builder on here to talk to because what <laughs> earth is going on with this house? Because, yeah. you know, Ken, Ken's got great. He looks like Gandalf. He had sort of thick black hair when I first knew him. Now he looks like Gandalf and what's going on. It was none of that. Um, it was just some of the uh, 
you know, pretty, as you've been describing on the, to today, some of the, the interesting ways in which you approach the business and, and your team approaches it, which, which just sounded to be interesting and we thought we needed to, needed to talk to you. So it wasn't the fact that it was driving him completely crazy. Um, so before we just close off there, um, is there something you're currently working on? Is there a, a new project? Is there a new initiative that you've got? You talked about the uh, Builders and Brews earlier on that you'd like our listeners to know about something you're involved in um i think i think builders and brews is probably uh builders and brews is the most interesting thing one of the more interesting things that we've got going on right now we're actually going uh stefan helps me run that that group um it's a story that's caught on so we're actually working with uh local pilot champions in toronto edmonton uh, and South Carolina, strangely, and Washington's, um, the city, not the state, uh, as well, uh, to host events in those markets. So that's kind of neat to see that this story of how we can, how we can better collaborate and build each other up, um, that that's catching on with people and is giving us the opportunity to scale that, that sort of movement, uh, has been, has been really exciting and, and gratifying over the last uh, six months, and that will continue to grow uh, in the months and years ahead here. Well, that sounds great, and, and we'll certainly make sure that we um, include a link through to that website in our show notes so that if our, our listeners are interested in finding out more or perhaps opening up a uh, Builders and Brews chapter in a city that they're in, if they're outside of Calgary, that's something that they could um, connect with you. And I noticed you said that was the most interesting thing. Now you've finished with Ken's House. Ken's House was the most interesting thing, but now Builders and Brews is more interesting, yeah? <laughs> yeah, we're done that. We're done that now. No, it's, it's and that, that, that's, that's good to hear that it was mostly positive feedback and it was a positive experience and i don't know how much ken has talked about your house ken i have to share the um when we were at the builders and brews event the other day and i was talking to another uh, designer from somewhere from edmonton i believe or from somewhere else about your house and he was asking me about the capless parapet deal detail and you were like oh what? oh what's that and i it made me realize that i had never stopped to explain to you one of my favorite features of 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 your and uh rita's house which is that like we we worked with the architects and with the trades to uh, build w- where the where the house meets the sky essentially we built that differently from how you might otherwise build that and it, and it looks really really good I don't know if you've ever shared shared pictures of that or or anything but um, that's one of my favorite features of the house and it was neat to see you realize that Ken the other day that was a fun little interaction. I love the point there, Byron, that um, you were highlighting some things to Ken about how wonderful his house was, and he hadn't realised that that was just one of the wonders of it. There are obviously so many wonders to the house, and he was sort of slightly deflated, like, but Ken, this was so wonderful, what we did, and he's like, well, I don't even know what it was. So uh, I'm glad that you filled him in, so now we can, uh, uh, when I next go around and, and see it, he'll be able to show me, this is what Byron was talking about. So uh, that'll be cool. Well, you know, it's it's uh, from the moment we moved in, people have been uh, stopping on the street, staring in the windows, coming up and knocking on the door, telling us how much they love the house. And in fact, one of the reasons I was a little bit tardy for the podcast recording today was because the next door neighbor across the street came running across the street as I was getting into my car to tell me, hey, I really got to just tell you how much I love your house, neighbor. Uh, my name's uh, X, by the way, and my brother-in-law was visiting. He grew, went to fine art school. He's always admired architecture. And he was pointing out to me all of the beautiful features of this house. 
of your house, the house that was right across the street. So um, it, literally people are stopping me all the time. That's the kind of quality build that we can expect from Brookright Developments. You, our listeners, can expect from Brookright Developments should you be lucky enough to work with them. And that brings us to the end of our episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. Remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Share the link with your friends or colleagues so that you can always reach out to us at the email address in the show notes. And goodbye for now, and we'll effing talk to you soon. And thanks to Byron Brooks for being the person that we were effing talking to today. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Byron. We'll speak to everyone soon. Take care.